This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Hello and welcome to the Ether Review. Today I have Zuko Wilcox of Zcash on the show to guide us through more crypto finance. So thanks for joining me, uh, me Zuko. Could you give the audience a quick introduction and explain kind of what you're all about? Okay, hi. My name is Zuko and I'm the founder and CEO of the Zcash company. We're making a cryptocurrency and a protocol and a software, which is encryption, cryptography, protocol for putting private data on a public blockchain. And we're launching a our own blockchain, which when using that technology, that forms a, a kind of digital cash, which has private transactions on a global public blockchain. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite funny. I was just talking to um, Palais Brandgard, who was telling me that you guys know one another from the crypto finance conference. So you're one of the old guard of this whole uh, of this entire field. Yeah, I guess so. I um, started working on this when I went to work for Digicash, or well, I guess before because I was 19 years old in 1993 or 94 or so, and I discovered the papers of David Chom, the great cryptographer who invented most of the methods of getting privacy on the internet, including the first private money for the internet. And that was a half my life ago now. So this is, uh, it's quite funny because I was just talking, these are sequential interviews. And um, so I was talking to him literally half an hour ago. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and nice. and, and his, his will come out just at the episode before yours. So from that time, and this is again, harking back to my conversation with, uh, with Pele, you know, what does it feel like to see this uh, second wave of financial cryptography emerge? Mm, I'm really excited about it because the first wave never had customers. This was early in the internet, like the internet, the, the World Wide Web didn't have customers when we started. And um, I wrote a blog post about Bitcoin, probably one of the first blog posts ever posted to the internet about Bitcoin. And I think maybe 2009, I forget what year it was. And all I said about it was, here's another new attempt to make decentralized money. And a cool thing about this one is that it actually has a community around it. So that's something I really love about the current wave. So how do these, uh, how do you privatize? I mean, there have been earlier efforts to, to privatize transactions or to anonymize transactions or obscure the information about the participants and the, and the contents of a transaction on a blockchain. What makes Zcash more compelling than other offerings? The Zcash approach is... It's, it uses this cryptographic breakthrough called zero-knowledge proofs, and I can explain what it's for. The Zcash approach is to encrypt all of the data and only give the decryption keys to the authorized parties who ought to see that data. This is something that we've done, like I and other, other work that I've done in the past, and, and people in sort of the crypto community uh, have internalized, is that the right way to design systems is to encrypt everything and then disclose the keys to the people who need to see any particular thing. So we've applied that principle to a cryptocurrency, and 
the reason this wasn't possible before with like the other approaches to privacy that you mentioned is that if you encrypt everything, then that prevents the miners or validators from checking that the transactions are valid. And that's where the zero-knowledge proofs come in. Zero-knowledge proofs are a cryptographic breakthrough that has been studied in the cryptography science community for several decades, for about probably 30 years. But recently, some scientists came up with improvements to zero-knowledge proofs, which makes them uh, practical in terms of computation time and space. And some of those scientists are some of the founders of our company. And with these modern practical zero-knowledge proofs, we can solve that problem of the miners not being able to validate encrypted transactions. So with, with these modern, very efficient zero-knowledge proofs, we can solve that problem of the miners or validating nodes otherwise being unable to validate encrypted transactions. With zero-knowledge proofs, I can, as the creator of a transaction, I can create a proof that says this transaction contains uh, only valid data. Like if it's digital cash, which it is in the uh, first application of this technology in the Zcash company, then you're proving that you actually own that much cash. You haven't already transferred it to anyone else and that you are hereby transferring it to the recipient. And with a zero-knowledge proof, you can prove all that stuff is true without revealing any of the encrypted details, such as the address of the recipient or the address of the sender yourself or the amount of the transaction. There are other ways of doing this. What makes the, or not necessarily of doing this, but there are other ways of anonymizing transactions. What makes this a, uh, the optimal way of doing it? It's, this is not necessarily the optimal way of doing it. There are some drawbacks to this approach which I can go into if you want. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the, the advantages of this approach are that you're leaking the minimal amount of information into the blockchain. If you sort of think of it in terms of information theory, all information is like a substance. And if you have a, a privacy scheme which attempts to obscure the private facts, the private data, like um, in Bitcoin, you have mixers, where multiple parties can pool their transactions together and then the transactions get redistributed to multiple recipients. And that hides some of the information about exactly who did exactly what. But it doesn't hide all of the information. If you think about the whole blockchain and, and all of the other information that's visible to a potential uh, spy or eavesdropper, there's a lot of information still present, even if you use a mix in Bitcoin. Like, there's only a few people who use that mix. Right? Everyone else who didn't use the mix is in a different set. So you, as, a, as a spy and eavesdropper, you get a big bunch of information right there about the differences between the different participants. The notable thing about the Zcash technology is that because we're able to encrypt now, because we have zero-knowledge proofs for integrity checking, that enables us to encrypt. And that enables us to design a protocol which puts almost no information about the private information about the participants into the blockchain. So if you're looking at a Bitcoin or an Ethereum blockchain, you know, there's a bunch of tools now that do blockchain analysis and visualization. In my opinion, unfortunately, those tools are mostly not visible to the public. They're sold to compliance departments in exchanges, and they're sold to law enforcement, and they're in-house tools at those kind of places as well. But there's currently, as far as I know, no, nowhere you can just go on the web or, or just uh, 
acquire a tool for cheap or free so that the rest of us can see what, what those tool users are currently seeing. Uh, but my point was, if you if you inspect the blockchain, like the Bitcoin or, Ethe- or the Ethereum blockchain, you get a great deal of information. And originally, many years ago when Bitcoin was new, this was underappreciated. People kind of oversimplified and thought to themselves that since like your human name and social security number are not in your Bitcoin address, that that makes a Bitcoin private. And the same applies to Ethereum, which is that that's obviously not true. It kind of reminds me of how in the early days of the internet, people thought since your your name and address are not in your IPv4 dotted quad address, that makes the internet private and untraceable. And of course, that's not true either. You need much better technology to accomplish that. I have seen demos of that kind of blockchain analysis that are publicly available. Maybe I could give you some links to them. So if you look at Ethereum or Bitcoin blockchain, you see a whole bunch of information about who did what. And if you imagine such a blockchain in which there are also some mixers, like on the current Bitcoin blockchain, there's still a great deal of information out there. I'm still struggling to answer your question of what's the limitation of those sort of earlier approaches to privacy. And part of it is that it's sometimes possible to factor out some of the sort of chaff or cover traffic and then you're then as as an attacker as an eavesdropper you're able to discern the original behavior of the uh, participants who are trying to remain private that's happening right now or it was happening last time i checked with um, something called join market it's basically a mixer for bitcoin and it turned out it was revealed by the join market um, maintainers a little while ago that someone has been deliberately uh adding fake transactions to the mix so that if if there are like 10, I don't know exactly how join market works, but you can see that if there are 10 different transactions being bundled together in a mixer, and then it turns out that nine of them were actually being supplied by this spy whose, whose goal it is is to figure out what you are doing. You actually got no protection at all from using that mixer, uh, but you don't know that. You, you can't know that necessarily. And that's what's been happening, or, or somebody's been attempting to do that uh, to join market. And we don't know who's attempting to do it. And even worse than that, I suppose, you put yourself in a set of users of particularly high interest. Well, it depends on your threat model, right? Something I like to think about is the threat model is uh, a thief who wants to target you. The thief is trying to figure out where the Bitcoin is going because he's going to break into there and steal the keys, or he's going to extort the person who received the Bitcoin or who's who's got a lot of Bitcoin. In that case, I don't think it would be that using privacy technology makes you more of, of interest to the thief. Uh, but in general, I think you make a good point that all kinds of security technology in general, I think of privacy as a subset of security. All kinds of security technology has this problem that it's hard to tell if it's working or not. And if people misunderstand what it does or, or how safe it is or how well it works, uh, then that can do them more harm than good. If they think something is invulnerable to being hacked, then they might store their private keys on it. And then that would make them more uh, suffer more if it is actually more vulnerable than they thought. And the same with privacy. I think it's important not to oversell privacy technology and tell people that it's um, a magic bullet where if you just use this, then you're invulnerable to being extorted or spied on or stolen from because nothing is a magic bullet. But in your opinion, Zcash uses the most effective privatization features. 
it's definitely much more effective in a certain mathematical sense in that it puts much less information about you into the blockchain or about your actions into the blockchain. And in fact, it, it, it puts almost no information at all about your actions into the blockchain. But there are a whole lot of caveats around that where that's still not enough uh, necessarily. It depends because there's a lot of ways that people can spy on you outside of the blockchain, right? If they're uh, sniffing your Wi-Fi that you're using at the local coffee shop, then it won't matter whether you're using Zcash and your transactions are safe as replicated globally in the blockchain because that person can observe your transactions locally. Or if they've hacked your, your account, if they've fished you and gotten your password. There are other limitations or risks in Zcash. Uh, it uses novel cryptography. Well, novel's the wrong word. It uses cryptography that was invented only 20 or 30 years ago, depending on <laughs> how you count. Some of the most recent improvements to it, as I mentioned, are just a few years old. Like 2013, I think, so had um, some major advances in the uh, efficient forms of the zero-knowledge proofs. So those are less battle-tested and less well-understood, less widely analyzed than like all of the cryptography that powers, you know, TLS and I mean HTTPS and a lot of the stuff on the internet is many decades old, pretty much. So what's so new about zero-knowledge proofs? I mean, what was the problem that was so hard to solve, and why is it potentially a concern that it's it was only solved recently and that this is a new technology? Well, until a few years ago, the zero-knowledge proofs, if you produced a proof that said something like, I hereby prove that I know a secret key, and that secret key controls some money, and that money hasn't previously been spent, and so forth. You produced a proof like that, it would be probably tens or hundreds of kilobytes of data in size. And so that right there was immediately prohibitive for using in a cryptocurrency, because you need another one of those proofs for every private transaction you make. And we couldn't have, you know, no, have, of course not. we couldn't have transactions that large in a blockchain. <laughs> it would just be infeasible currently. So the big breakthroughs that happened in the last few years were making proofs that are extremely small. They're on the orders of 300 bytes and are very, very fast to validate. Um, it takes only a few milliseconds for um, CPU to verify that the proof is correct. And that's really important because validation needs to be done by all the miners and full nodes, uh, as well as recipients of money in the cryptocurrency. But there are some drawbacks to the modern form. These are called ZK-SNARKs. ZK stands for zero knowledge. And SNARKs is some funny acronym, but you can think of it as a SNARK as being like a, a very terse quip or argument or comeback. Yeah. Anyway. So they're small, they're short, and that's why that's what's important about them. But those ones, they have a couple of drawbacks. One is that they're very CPU intensive to generate those proofs. So it only takes a few milliseconds to validate the correctness, but it takes maybe a minute or so to produce a new proof. And the other thing that's a big drawback is that the naive way to the modern ZK snarks require this crypto value called public parameters. And these are a bunch of crypto values. They're, you can think of them as sort of being like a whole giant set of public keys or something like that, which everyone in the system has to know. 
and everyone uses those public parameters both for generating proofs and for validating the correctness of proofs. Okay? The ZK SNARKs that are highly efficient, they have these public parameters, and a big drawback is that the naive way to create such public parameters also simultaneously creates a backdoor. It comes with the parameters, which is, you can basically think of it as producing public-private key pairs, and the public ones are what everyone needs to use for the ZK proof system, and the private keys are a thing that let you prove falsehoods. So if you know the private keys, you can get anyone in the system to accept any, anything you want. So what is the nature of that backdoor? Well, are we delving into deep math here? That's that's about as mathematical as I can accurately make it, is to say that it is like knowing, hmm, what is the nature of it? It's a bunch of data which, if you know that, we call this the toxic waste private key because our plan is to make it so that it never comes into existence. Um, <laughs> we're not going to produce any toxic waste, but... If you know the toxic waste private keys, then people who are relying on the public parameters to verify proofs can be tricked by you. You can make up proofs that appear to prove something, even if you if you don't actually know that thing. Sorry, that's very confusing, because what ZK proofs are proving is that you know something. <laughs> or in the case of SNARKs, another way to think about it is that you knew the inputs to a computer program, and this is the output. i'm sorry this stuff is so mind-boggling yeah man you're not kidding we had um we've had some really great uh we've had some really great talks about it in the consensus offices i've just unfortunately not been privy to them but um Ah. we're going to be we're going to be recording them and publishing them on uh on on the consensus media website soon so that'll be really awesome it's fascinating stuff it's really science fiction i mean yeah this is the most sophisticated cryptography that I'm aware of someone uh, deploying it to the internet like this. I'm sure there's plenty of counterexamples that someone could complain to me that I'm forgetting about their product. But uh, to me, this is this is really really cutting edge stuff, like you say. And almost all of the like valuable, useful cryptography that I've ever seen used before was built out of a few um, much more primitive and much older building blocks, like Bitcoin and Ethereum are built out of secure hash functions and digital signatures. And, you know, those two things are 40 years old, probably. So it's really exciting and scary to be putting to use one of the much more powerful and sophisticated modern inventions. So now we've talked about Zcash, you know, or, or zero-knowledge proofs, and, uh, and how they can anonymize transactions what about Zcash itself? Now, it's not the first cryptocurrency using zero-knowledge proofs that was conceived of. There was prior to this, there was zero coin and zero cash as well. Am I am I on the money there? Yeah, yeah. Um, zero coin was the first one that I can remember. It was invented by a trio of scientists uh, at Johns Hopkins. And it was presented at the Bitcoin conference in San Jose in 2013. At that conference, there were a bunch of other scientists who had been working on uh, ZK SNARKs. Uh, And I was at that conference too. And when those two teams of scientists met up with each other, they realized you could use ZK SNARKs to replace the part of ZeroCoin that was too large and expensive 
to be practical. And therefore, that with, with that combination of, of some zero-coin concepts and the ZK-SNARK tool, uh, they created ZeroCash. And Zcash, as it currently exists, is um, almost the same as ZeroCash. It's been modified and improved in a few small ways from the ZeroCash protocol. Uh, we found a few bugs um, that we fixed in the protocol. Oh, and, and so let me throw in all seven of those scientists who invented those various discoveries that led to this uh, are also founders of the Zcash company. So what is the Zcash company and what's its business model? It's what happened when those scientists contacted me and said, we really want this invention that we have to become a real widely used, you know, production ready thing in the real world. So we joined forces and founded this company. And uh, the business model, there's two things that we intend to do to make money. The second one, we're not exactly sure how it's going to work yet. Um, the first one is that the Zcash company gets a fraction of the mining from the first four years of the Zcash blockchain. Uh, what percentage? What, what fraction? It's 10% of all the Zcash ever. So like Bitcoin, there's going to be 21 million ever. Uh-huh. And 2.1 million is going to go to the company during the first four years. The Bitcoin is not going to like that. Yeah, some people really hate it, but... Um, most people are not so concerned no. about it because I think because a lot of people appreciate that the reason we did that, right, which was that we really wanted to make this into something that could be widely used and people could rely on and uh, we needed money to make it happen. <laughs> totally. Also, that aligns your interests with the interests of long-term holders of the yeah. Um, of the coin of yeah, the at, at least for the first four years. It's kind of a vesting schedule, so there's. Is there's incentive alignment at least up to the first four years, um, after which all the recipients of that thing. We call that the founder's reward. I, for one, am heavily emotionally invested in Zcash anyway, so <laughs> no doubt I will hold all my Zcash as tightly as I can and uh, work for as long as I can on making it better. But in terms of actual consensus rules, there's this built-in incentive alignment for the first four years. And so, um, so what about? I heard recently that at a, at a hackathon recently, and this may you may or may not be able to shed light on this, a way of anonymizing using zero knowledge proofs, uh, Ethereum transactions was built oh, at, yeah. uh, at Cornell. Do you know much about that? Yeah, it was it was people from our team who mostly led that. Um, there were a couple of other folks. Uh, unfortunately, I've forgotten where they were from. But there was, you know, like four or five people at the hackathon who got together, and two or three of them were the Zcash uh, employees or representatives at the hackathon. That is, we call that baby Zoe. <laughs> yeah. Z Zoe stands for Zcash on Ethereum. And it's called baby Zoe because it's just a prototype. It's just a, a baby step. It's kind of a proof of concept. But it's a proof of concept. That's really awesome. Yeah, and it totally actually runs. Now, it doesn't run on main Ethereum chain because the main Ethereum chain doesn't have an opcode, what they call a precompile, for zero-knowledge proof verification. How hard would that be to implement? And what is the uh, what are the resource demands of, of that, uh, of Baby Zoe? Um, 
<clears throat> it would not be hard to implement. Our 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 team at the hackathon implemented that precompile uh, in Parity and deployed it for the hackathon. So I don't even I don't think there's an EIP yet. Not that I've seen, but uh, so the process is write an EIP and I don't know exactly how how it works to get new precompiles added to the main Ethereum blockchain. I guess it requires a hard fork to, to upgrade it. Well, we've got one coming, um, Metropolis. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we see that there. So what is the advantage to the Zcash company to be allowing or to be assisting Ethereum in anonymizing their transactions using your technology? That's a good question. There's no direct benefit because uh, our direct benefit that I mentioned is from the founder's reward from the Zcash blockchain. So people using baby Zoe type things on the Ethereum blockchain, we don't benefit from financially. There are, there are potentially revenue streams we can build. I told you there were two ways to do it, and we're not exactly sure what the second one is. So <laughs> one, one good idea is uh, to sell technology to banks, because uh, I've spent a lot of time talking to a lot of banks over the last year, and there's a very strong need for privacy in banking blockchains. And there may be other ways that we can make money by building new products or services on top of, of these technologies, in which case... It will have been good that we were at the forefront of the Zcash on Ethereum um, thing. But, you know, also, honestly, the real truth is, um, like, it's good for our reputation, too. That's that's definitely good for us, right? But we're really just motivated to make privacy-protecting technology for everyone on the planet. And uh, if... Uh, and if uh, baby Zoe can help with that, then uh, all the better. Yeah, it's we are, we're definitely focusing all of our sort of production engineering focus on the Zcash protocol implementation and blockchain and launch and supporting our integration partners and so on. So there's a lot of effort that goes into that, and that's definitely our primary focus. Uh, but this is very early days for this kind of technology, and Nobody can predict what will be most important to people. And so I'm happy to spend a little bit of our effort, you know, on in our spare time. So we sent a few of our people to that hackathon for like a weekend. And it's really awesome how much how far we got in one weekend, you know. I'm happy to contribute where we can to any technology that promises to protect and empower uh, potentially everyone in the future. Is there anything else we want to cover about Zcash before uh, before I move on to some other questions? I can talk <clears throat> about Zcash all day. <laughs> I, no I have a hundred more things I want to tell you about Zcash. Let, let's hear. Let's hear. Uh, I don't know what your other questions are. Maybe maybe your other questions are about well, these. I want to I want to know about Digicash. Right? Digicash mm. is is crazy because I was just talking to Pele about it and how it kind of emerged from David Tome's work. Is it has? Yep. Yeah, David Chome's work in uh, in the early eighties, mid mid eighties, and mm-hmm. it's often referred to as the rallying cry for the cypherpunk movement. And then suddenly, you're you know you're one of the people who was involved with Digicash. It seems like we're getting closer and closer to the to the fountain. You know, what do you mean? Well, that was where all this seems to have come from. All this cryptocurrency and this new wave of of applications of cryptography was uh, came from the from digi was derived from digicash and the cypherpunk movement and really popularized yeah 
Well, there is one more thing I want to tell you about Zcash then before we move on to that, which is that among the other ways that we are trying to promote privacy protecting technology in various ways are making integration and interoperation between Ethereum and Zcash so that ultimately once we have the necessary technology deployed, there will be a, a frictionless and trustless method to exchange your Zcash for Ether and vice versa. Would that use something like uh, like BTC Relay? Yeah, that's the core. Take BTC Relay, and, and we also want to support BTC Relay itself so that we have Ethereum to Bitcoin in that mix as well. But uh, take BTC Relay and replace uh, just a few parts of it to make uh, Z Relay, which is a you know effectively a light client for the Zcash blockchain that runs inside Ethereum. That's the core of it. Uh, but then you need a lot of layers to build an actual marketplace so you can find willing counterparties and uh, UX so that you can figure out what you want to do and get it done. So you need a uh, an Ethereum-based um, decentralized exchange, essentially. Right. Um, that part is not as well specced out yet. There's kind of like three layers. There's the BTC Relay and Z Relay which is for atomic cross-chain swaps. And then you need a marketplace for finding counterparties and establishing prices and stuff like that. And it's not yet clear in this effort. This is We call this Project Alchemy to make these things seamlessly interchangeable. And then you need, in order to really make a, a market, you need, wides, you need a lot of participants, a lot of users in that market. And so you need multilingual wallets that know how to speak both Ethereum and Bitcoin and Zcash and that make it easy to exchange one for the other. So what was it like to be part of the original DigiCash development? It's, uh, you know, that is, that's something that no one seems to be talking about is DigiCash. And I haven't really done that much beyond reading beyond Wikipedia on it, but it seems like that's, that's someplace I need to go back and, and do some research. You can find a couple of magazine articles that were written about it, but... Uh... I don't know where you'll get a lot of written information about it. It was uh, super great for me. I went to work there when I got an offer from DigiCash to come try out for like junior coder. And <laughs> the, the reason I got that offer is because they had done an open public uh, beta kind of thing where they had some fake money, some you know valueless uh, monopoly money called Cyberbucks. And I wrote a script that I put up on my web page where there was a, a, a GIF of, or GIF, however you pronounce it, of two quarters, uh, US quarters uh, worth 25 cents each. And when you clicked on it, it would bill you for 50 cents worth of Cyberbucks, half a Cyberbuck. And then if you paid the Cyberbucks, it would deliver to you a copy of this script I had written to uh, ease the use of PGP, which I wrote in part for my mom. <laughs> <laughs> There was a bash script that parsed and uh, executed PGP in a subprocess uh, so that if you were reading your email in one of these text-based email readers, which you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, no, but absolutely. <laughs> if you're on your terminal and you're reading your email in this little rectangular text box, then my script would make it easier to use PGP to decrypt the incoming email, which is PGP encrypted. So... My uh, my store on the web sold this script for fifty cents a pop. They were having a competition for uh, who had the best Cyberbucks store, 
And when the competition was over, they informed me that I had the most profitable Cyberbuck store if you included all the porn and gambling. (laughs) 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 I never figured out how many competitors I had in my class. but (laughs) So they offered to fly me to Amsterdam because their headquarters was in Amsterdam, Holland, to try out for junior coder position. And I was so excited because, you know, this is like my dream job, right? Uh, This is the thing I'd spend my time um, hanging out on the lawn of my university reading papers by David Chom instead of going to class. I was a terrible student, and I was like totally failing in in university in my undergrad degree. So I told them, well, I guess I should finish my undergrad degree. I only have another year and a half to go. And then I called my best friend and I said, guess what? Did you cash offered me to try out for a job? And he said, what did you tell them? And I said, oh, I told them I had to finish my undergrad degree. And he said, <laughs> he, he said verbatim, he said, I just have one question for you. Is this exactly the kind of opportunity you've been waiting for? Uh, and that was all he said. And I was like, oh, okay, you're right. I'll call you back. Um, <laughs> so I went and called them back and said, wait a minute. No, I don't really need to finish my undergrad degree right now. I could come try out for junior coder. And that was one of the best decisions of my life because I learned so much more uh, working at that company with all these crazy, brilliant cryptographers than I was learning in school. Wow. So this is like, this is, this seems like the, uh, you know, the start of one of those, uh, one of those kind of feel good movies about, you know, from the eighties. That- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. And, uh, and so that, so when was that? That was, uh, that was 1996. Okay, 96. So DigiCash had been around for 11 years at that stage. Really? I didn't know they were that old by then. Maybe they weren't. Maybe the paper was published in Oh, yeah. The, yeah, 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 the paper. So uh, David Chom invented also the concept of mixing, which we were talking about earlier <laughs> with regard to Bitcoin transactions, um, and which is the core of like the Tor system for anonymizing your, or adding privacy, I prefer to say, to your um, TCP connections. That, that was also invented by David Chom, also in the 80s. Um, and he's also one of the people who wrested public key cryptography and modern cryptography from the U.S. military by researching and helping to publish in the public uh, and founding the open academic uh, um, group of, of crypto researchers uh, in the early days when it still seemed like uh, the NSA was uh, trying to suppress dissemination of that information outside of their own bounds. I guess uh, I'm, I'm kind of going off into the weeds a bit here. Um, but wait, so where is this guy, David Chalm, these days? Well, he is still working. He made a big splash about a year ago by presenting a new kind of privacy scheme, which, if I recall correctly, includes the use of zero-knowledge proofs for efficiency. He's kind of a um, mad genius who comes up with a ton of big ideas. So I'm hoping he'll come up with more. He's also, in the meantime, in the in the interim between like DigiCash and today, he also did a great deal of work in um, verifiable voting, where you can give a voter a receipt of a sort, and then they can use that receipt to verify that their vote was counted and counted correctly and included in the totals. But at the same time, you don't violate their privacy in any way, such as by uh, revealing to any third party how they voted or making it easy for them to yeah, suffer in other ways. 
like I said, this is going off a bit into the weeds, but do you think that the uh, the activist cypherpunk kind of cryptography movement came f- as a reaction to the NSA's suppression of suppression of cryptography outside their own walls? It's an interesting question. If you really want to get into the history, then you have to start making finer distinctions, right? Which you don't have to do if you're just a casual observer. But the cypherpunks per se were a subgroup that were, that were very influential. But like David Chom, for example, would not count himself among the cypherpunks. And uh, Phil Zimmerman, who's another pioneer that was very important in this process of wresting control from the government, uh, wouldn't. So when I read the cypherpunk FAQ, there was one statement in there where the, uh, where the author said something along the lines of, this may be a controversial statement, but I advocate the killing of individuals who break their contracts. And so for me, that seems like there was this really radical element that, uh, that attached the brand of cypherpunk to itself. And that may not necessarily be 100% fair, right? To, to tar all cypherpunks with, this, with that brush. Oh, yeah. If you, if you want to be 100% fair, you have to be a lot finer grained than even distinguishing between cypherpunks and the other subgroups of the crypto counterculture. Namely, that the cypher, cypherpunks was a mailing list, right? So basically, anybody who could subscribe to a mailing list and who insisted on continuing to send mail to it counted as a cypherpunk in my book. So there was a diversity of political opinions and like levels of sanity among that set. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I bet. But like, so, so how do you how do you def- how do you divide up and how do you define the uh, you know how fine grained would would you define the the population of uh, of cryptographers back in those days? Well, there are a set of cryptographers that I really admire and think of as heroes. Their role in life ever since has been like professor and distinguished fellow at big tech company and junk like that. So they're, they're very respectable, right? They had degrees, or at least they got degrees by the end of the story. And um, they, you know, they, they represented that. They, were, they didn't say these inflammatory things like uh, the cypherpunks fact apparently did. Uh, but what they did was actually, I think, required courage and was very much idealistically motivated. And I think it had a huge impact on world history which was discovering or uncovering uh, the science of cryptography and sharing it with the world uh, in defiance of attempts by the United States military to uh, suppress that. And they succeeded, and it's hard to tell so many decades later how close they came, right? Like, if if that was just uh, fait accompli from the beginning because the internet and modern science were uh, made it too easy for everyone to learn everything, or if um, the NSA did come just that close to maintaining exclusive control over modern cryptography. This is really Promethean. That's how I think of it. I'm a very idealistic, hero-worshipping kind of person. So David Chaum, uh, Phil Zimmerman, for sure. Who else would you add to that list? Whit Diffie, Ron Rivest. Then there were a whole lot of people in who sort of had less prominent roles, but who were also motivated idealistically and who also went out of their way to sort of 
contribute to the cause. There was a lot of civil disobedience. Oh, and I, I just happened to remember one of those people who had a small role at the time was Adam Back. Um, yeah. Daniel J. Bernstein. And a whole bunch of like engineers working in tech companies. Uh, and I hope that that spirit is still alive in those big Silicon Valley tech companies. Uh, hard to tell from where I sit. But there's this very strong pattern that it was a lot easier to get a product that used cryptography to protect the users out there than it was to limit those things to only Americans, which is one of the big conflicts for a long time in that era. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty amazing. Also, Ralph Merkel just uh, published a paper on oh, yeah. distributed governance. Yeah, he's a great he's a great inventor. I don't know about his distributed governance ideas. I, I don't understand those well enough to evaluate them, but uh, certainly his fundamental crypto contributions are tremendous. He's one of the inventors of public key cryptography. Yeah, he's huge. But yeah, I was going to go on and say there's – I have – at the time in the old cypherpunks days, like in the 90s and early 2000s, and now again today with the modern resumption of political conflicts over cryptography, I feel a lot of solidarity with other tech geeks like myself. I feel like there's a common understanding at the parties that I go to and at the business meetings that I go to that everyone in the room, or at least most people in the room, are probably on board with it being valuable and socially beneficial and important to protect individuals and um, protect users and make it possible for people to communicate safely, despite the efforts of like their local corrupt kleptocrat governments or hackers from enemy countries or whatever. And I really appreciate that. And I missed it in the interim. There was this desert and sometime in the late 2000s uh, where for a lot of years I thought uh, I was the last lonely cypherpunk. Um, everyone else said privacy's dead, get over it, and uh, the kids these days don't care about that stuff. And um, I'm really glad to uh, have a sense of community behind me again. Where should people go to find out more about Zcash and about the subjects we've talked about today? Well, about Zcash, you should go to https colon slash slash z dot c-a-s-h, z dot cash. About the other stuff, you know, you should collect a bunch of links about the Cypherpunks FAC and tools that can analyze the Bitcoin blockchain and show you who did what when and uh, the history of public key cryptography and modern cryptography. I will. I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got a big, don't worry, I've got a massive link list. I'll, I'll chuck it in there. Hey, thanks so much, Zuko. And I'm sorry this was so hard to get uh, to get set oh, up. But glad we finally got it done. Yeah, um, I really look forward to your edited version of this. Um, hope you don't make me sound uh, stupid. <laughs> no, no, it's my by job, cutting out no. all the smart parts. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, I cut out anything that might sound. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email, contact at etherreview.info, or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.